Well, we want to turn to the book of Ruth. So if you have your Bible, please take your Bible and let's go over to Ruth chapter 2. We'll get back into our study on the book of Ruth. And this is uh, our 15th message in this particular book. And we're zeroing in on Ruth chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 in this message. We've entitled the entire series, Unexpected Redemptive Providence. And in this particular message, we're zeroing in on the issue of, of all things, loving your enemy. Loving your enemy. And there's a very specific reason why I've entitled this particular message this way, because we often don't think of the book of Ruth in these terms. When you mention to the average Christian, the book of Ruth, immediately this incredibly intensive romantic love story comes to their mind, and this is what they zero in on. And I'm not saying that there isn't an element of that in the book of Ruth, but if that's what you think about the book of Ruth, you miss the entire significance of the book. And where it stands, especially in the 66 canonical books of the Bible, and how significant this particular book is. You understand there's only two books in the Bible that are named after women, and this is one of them, all right? And there's a very specific reason why that's the case. Now, recent history will tell you that some of the most extreme hateful behavior can come from bitter rivalries and jealousy. There's been a bitter rivalry, maybe you don't know this, between David Letterman and Oprah Winfrey. It's gone on for a long time. Between Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, between George Bush and Al Gore, between the skating rivals Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding, between the cartoon characters Wiley E. Coyote and the Roadrunner, and between the fictional families of Romeo and Juliet, the Capulets and the Montagues, and between the infamous rivalry of those two West Virginia families, the Hatfields and the McCoys, which actually started from a dispute over, of all things, a pig. Later on in that dispute, I was reading a little bit of background of this. Um, Rosianna McCoy had an affair with one of the Hatfield boys, which even led to several more brutal murders between them. Bitter, bitter rivalries. Now, the surprising and unexpected events of Ruth chapter 2 are born out of a a millennia of jealous rivalry. And this is the part that we don't see and we don't remember. We get wrapped up in the relationship between just Ruth and Boaz, but we don't see what this is really coming out of. Now, in our last message, we studied Ruth's query concerning Boaz's treatment of her as a Moabite woman. She asks in verse 10, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? That's a great question. Since I am a foreigner, 
Boaz's response to her is nothing short of unexpected and remarkable given the intense hostility and bitter rivalry between the nations of Israel and the nation of Moab in those days. Every Israelite was aware of the sordid and wicked history of the Moabites. So this is significant. The simple fact that the entire race of Moabites descended from an incestuous relationship between Lot, which was Abraham's nephew, and his oldest daughter, producing a son that they named Moab in Genesis chapter 19, was enough for every Jew to despise all the Moabites. And in addition, the Moabites worshiped the detestable pagan deity, Chemosh. We know that the king of Moab, Mesha, went to war against Israel at the command of Chemosh. And it was Chemosh who also commanded human sacrifice for his own satisfaction and appeasement. We see this in 2 Kings chapter 3. This was the worst type of wickedness in the eyes of most Israelites. Yet Chemosh was not their only God. They also worship a pantheon of Baals. There was Bamoth, Baal. There was Beth, Baal, Meon. There was Baal, Peor. All of them were warlike gods that kept the entire nation of Israel on high alert because they never knew when Moab was going to rise up against and strike them. Um, earlier, during the time of the judges, King Eglon of Moab oppressed Israel for 18 years with the assistance of Ammon and Amalek in Judges 3 until he was assassinated by Ehud. And we talked about that in a previous message. So the hostility and the animosity between Israel and Moab already had been long and bloody going back over 300 years during the time of the judges, before the time of Ruth. The fact that they were distantly related, going back to the extended family of Abraham, brought even more intense animosity and mutual hostility to these two groups of people. It's interesting, historically, Alexander the Great soundly defeated the Greeks, a people that he, in ages past, according to his lineage, he was actually related to. And he's quoted, after defeating the Greeks, he's quoted as saying, holy shadows of the dead, I am not to blame for your cruel and bitter fate, but the accursed rivalry which brought sister nations and brother people to fight one another I do not feel happy for this victory of mine. On the contrary, I would be glad, brothers, if I had all of you standing here next to me since we are unified by the same language, the same blood, and the same visions, end of quote. Samuel Johnson once stated, such seems to be the disposition of man that whatever makes a, a distinction produces rivalries. Whatever makes a distinction 
produces rivalries. Hmm. The obvious distinction between Israel and Moab gave birth to this intense rivalry. Now, once you understand the historical background of the ancient Israelites during the time of the judges and their vitriolic relationship with the Moabites, it's going to help you see the attitudes and actions of Boaz as being incredibly extraordinary and unanticipated. Let's take a look at this in chapter 2. And we're going to actually, in order to help you understand the immediate context, we're going to begin in verse 8 and read down through verse 16. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how that you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to the people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, For you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. And when she arose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from among the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. Now, I've divided our message into three easy parts today. Each part focuses on the very unique and virtuous character of Boaz. The first part of our message, we want to talk about his remarkable insight, his remarkable insight. The second thing is his remarkable invitation. And the third thing is his remarkable instructions, his insight, his invitation, and his instructions. Now, each of these three parts contain two important observations concerning the Israelite Boaz and his uncharacteristic reaction to the Moabitess Ruth. Altogether, six observations about the righteous character of Boaz that is later taught and modeled by our Lord Jesus Christ. David read a little bit earlier here in Join Heirs from Matthew chapter 5, Verses 43 through 48, let me remind you 
When Jesus said there in the Sermon on the Mount, I have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about Boaz's remarkable insight. And in order to see this, we have to back up just a little bit into those verses that we just read, beginning in verse 8, all the way down through verse 13. And you'll notice, and I highlighted this in our last message, the fact that Boaz turns to Ruth and calls her my daughter. The moment that this enemy of Israel heard that kind and gracious greeting, the nervousness of her situation then began to gradually dissipate. I'm sure she was confused at first, but that kind of response caused her anxious apprehensiveness to slowly evaporate. After all, she knew the seriousness of the risk that she was taking. There was a high probability that she would not come out of this alive. It does show her bravery, but the source of her bravery was not her own self-will, It was the confidence that she placed in her God, Yahweh, the God that she had given everything up for. You can see this back in chapter one and the vow that she makes beginning there in verses 16 through 18 to Naomi in order to follow her. That's the vow. That's the resolution that she takes. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be with you. It's interesting. Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9, said, It is better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in princes. The Apostle Paul understood this type of courageous confidence in the Lord whether in life and death, in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 7, he said, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. That is the characteristic that was genuinely true of Ruth. Now, the world applauds courageous people praising their strong will, their unusual resolve, their absence of fear. But I want you to understand that Ruth's bravery did not come from her personal strength of will, tough resolve, or her fearlessness. It came from her God. She trusted in his covenantal promises, which made her fireproof, and she knew it. Ruth knew that if people were going to harm her, it was part of God's will. But if God did not wish her to be harmed, then nothing was going to touch her. She understood that. Something that is a great lesson for you and I in the day and age in which we live. Now, when it comes to Boaz's remarkable insight, there's two things that he does here that I want to highlight. One is that he purposely selects her. He selects her. Once Boaz understood that Ruth was a foreigner, especially a Moabite, 
He could have easily had her dispatched and every Israelite would have applauded his actions. Instead, he selects her for favorable treatment. That's unexpected. That's unanticipated. Why? Why would Boaz ever do this? Boaz already knew her story. Verse 11. He heard she had left everything to follow Yahweh and those who loved Yahweh, even though her companion was going to be a bitter mother-in-law. He doesn't select her because she's pretty or young or attractive or his type. He selects her for special treatment because she really lovingly cared for her mother-in-law, Naomi. Lovingly cared for her. She didn't let grief, the loss of her husband, paralyze her. She left her father, her mother, her homeland. She came to a people she did not know despite the fact they were arch enemies of one another. And that powerfully impressed Boaz. The choices Ruth made in her young life were the fruit of a deep and abiding faith in Yahweh. How do we know that? Because look at verse 12 of chapter 2. Again, when she makes the statement, um, may the Lord, or when Boaz makes the statement, I should say, when the Lord, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Boaz pronounces a blessing upon her. It is a blessing that Yahweh was supposed to reward her. So he openly and freely acknowledges her true faith in Yahweh in that blessing because he says, Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. That's a statement of a true follower of Yahweh. That's a statement of true faith. That's who that is. So, Moaz could see that Ruth was taking shelter under the protection of Yahweh, providing ample evidence of her true faith in him and his covenant. So, Boaz's insight into her love and trust in the Lord is all that he needs to know. That's all he needs to know. Where every other Israelite would have judged her by external means, Boaz could see what was really in her heart by her risky decisions to follow and trust the outcomes to Yahweh. This blessing or prayer that Boaz expresses to Ruth in verse 12, Yahweh to bless her and that her wages be full from Yahweh becomes a very genuine wish or prayer that later, actually, he becomes the answer to. He becomes the answer to his prayer and his wish about Naomi. We see that in chapter 3 and verse 9. We'll study that in the future. How many prayers have you earnestly prayed on behalf of other people, only ending up finding out later on 
that you were the answer to those prayers. You became the answer to those prayers. So Boaz selects her. The second thing he does here, when it comes to his insight, he also supports her. He supports her. Now, how does he do this? Look at this carefully. We saw in the last message that Boaz does this both negatively and positively. First, negatively, he tells her not to go to any other field, but to stay with his mates. Why does he do that? Remember how we commented on this? We said that he purposely does this in order to protect her. If she was to go to any other field, another Israelite could probably put her to death and everybody would have thought, that's fine. He does that to protect her. He realizes that she is in a most risky position. She is putting herself at risk doing what she's doing. So negatively, he tells her, don't go anywhere else. Secondly, he says positively to do all of her gleaning from his field and that he has commanded his servants not to touch her. Verse 9. Now, remember, I said this before. This is history's first sexual harassment policy in the workplace. All right, this is the first one. Boaz was the first one to start all this. Sexual harassment policy in the workplace. Then he goes on to say that she can drink from the containers and jars of his servants when she gets thirsty. She doesn't have to haul her own water to the workplace. That is huge too. I mean, carrying water is a heavy thing to do. This little gal probably would have labored underneath that. You don't have to do that. Let my servants draw your water for you and you can drink the water from their jars that they have so laboriously labored in order to bring to this work site. Wow. Again, why does he do this? Because Boaz insightfully sees deep-rooted faith in Yahweh that's a part of her life. This type of faith was almost never seen among Moabites and rarely seen among Israelites. He wants to provide and protect her because Ruth cherishes Yahweh. Ruth cherishes Yahweh. So that was his insights into her. There's a second thing, which brings us to verse 14. The second thing is his remarkable invitation. Verse 14, his remarkable invitation. Boaz has already seen to it that Ruth's thirst is satisfied with the water drawn by his servants. But a hardworking girl also gets hungry. He's not going to let Ruth starve in his field. Again, look at verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. Wow. Now you've got to understand that this is not ultimately coming from the goodness of Boaz. It's coming from the goodness of Yahweh in providing everything that Ruth is going to need through Boaz. Boaz is the instrument. It's, it's a great joy to be an instrument of blessing for the Lord 
when you're blessing others. But the credit doesn't go to you. The credit goes to your Lord. It goes to your Lord. It is the Lord who should receive the glory. There's an inexpressible divine joy in being an instrument of blessing. When your focus is upon being a blessing, our Lord ensures you are blessed in abundance. This is not advocating a prosperity gospel, but it is saying that there is a deep abiding joy in being a blessing to other people. So there's two things about this remarkable invitation you've got to see here in verse 14. First of all, Boaz speaks to her. He speaks to her. When it comes to mealtime during the day, Ruth does not invite herself to their meal. It is Boaz who invites her. He speaks to her. And again, in simple things like this, you can see Ruth's trust and confidence in Yahweh's supply for her needs. It was probably obvious that Ruth did not carry much of anything to the field that day. She and Naomi didn't have much. And Boaz takes note of this and invites her to eat with them. Now, this is remarkable on so many levels. Remarkable on so many levels. Let me share just a couple of them, at least three of them, three levels here. Number one, Again, Ruth is a Moabite. She's a Moabitess. Eating meals together in ancient Israel was a custom that indicated closeness, friendship, trust. You only ate with people that you knew as close family friends. It was one thing for Boaz to be kind to her as a Moabitess, but that takes on a brand new level of significance when Boaz actually invites her to come and partake of the meal there. You're eating with an enemy of Israel. The ancient Hebrews would not eat with the Egyptians. Look at that in Genesis 43, 32. The Jews at the time of Christ would not eat with Samaritans. John 4 and verse 9. The fact that Jesus ate with the publicans and sinners angered the Jews in Matthew 9 and verse 11. You don't do those kind of things. So this offer to share a meal with Ruth was an olive branch. It was a remarkable offer for a like-minded fellowship of trust. It said, come and dine with us. We trust you like a close friend or a family member. That was highly unusual, and I'm sure somewhat shocking to the other members of Boaz's Jewish labor force. They're in shock. When Boaz does this, their mouths drop open and they start sucking air. You want her to eat with us? Really? Her to eat with us? So Ruth is a Moabite. That's the first level. Second level may seem obvious to you, but this is remarkable in ancient times. Ruth was a woman. Hmm. It's a woman. One Hebrew scholar said it like this. Women never were never present at, as guests at meals. End of quote. Women were never present as guests at meals. Guests were usually served by the women of the household. 
So for Boaz to invite Ruth to come and to eat with them at the same table violated strict Jewish custom. This is not necessarily biblical custom, but it's a Jewish custom, even among Jewish women. This is highly irregular and extremely abnormal. And I dare say probably stirred a lot of emotions. Now, you cannot help but see the foreshadowing of Christ in Boaz's actions here. The Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, Mary sitting at the feet, Jesus's feet, listening to him teach while Martha's running around trying to serve everyone in Luke 10. Every occasion where women encountered Jesus in the New Testament, they were treated with the utmost respect. So Boaz's treatment of Ruth is in stark contrast to the heavy-handed patriarchal treatment many ancient Jewish men had with women. So Ruth is Moabitess. Ruth is a woman. But the third thing, and the third level of significance here, is that she is a common laborer. She's a common laborer. That means she and Naomi were poor. They lacked resources. They lacked standing in the community. The poor didn't associate with the wealthy. That's the way it has been for ages. Boaz is asking her to sit down and enjoy a meal with him, a wealthy landowner. And I'm sure when many of Boaz's equals heard of this, they were astonished and somewhat horrified that their friend would do such a thing and eat with a common field laborer. Ruth had three strikes against her. She was a Moabite. She was a woman. She was an impoverished field hand. By ancient Hebrew standards, she could not get much lower than that. However, this did not stop Boaz from inviting her to his meal. And then he continues to break customs and surprise everyone with the next thing that he does. Look at it, verse 14. The second thing. First, he invites her and speaks to her and calls her to the table. Now, Boaz serves her. He serves her. Look at the last half of verse 14. Literally, Boaz held out her roasted, held out to her roasted grain. Now, why is that so surprising? Well, because according to the Jewish custom, the host would first serve only honored guests. The host would only serve honored guests. One uh, Bible scholar wrote this in an encyclopedia. It said, as an assurance of friendly regard, the host himself would dip a piece of bread in the common dish and hand it to another at the table. That honor, that, that showed that that particular person was a special guest at their table, was welcome special guest. And notice two important actions of sincere care for Ruth here in this. Number one, he treats her as an honored guest. That's the first thing. He treats her as an honored guest in serving her. Now, this is not the way that you would normally treat an enemy, a woman, a common laborer. Ruth has been working hard throughout the whole day. She's probably exhausted, covered with dirt. 
her matted dark hair dripping with sweat from working in the sun, but Boaz treats her like royalty. Now, in ancient times, there was always a common bowl in the middle of the table where everybody attending the meal could dip. And this bowl was usually a wine vinegar that you would use to dip your bread. It's interesting. Um, We still have traditions like that at a lot of restaurants. You go to a Mediterranean restaurant today, or it has Mediterranean cuisine today. Um, They'll serve you small cups of olive oil and vinegar in order to dip small pieces of bread. That's where that custom comes from. That goes way, way back to ancient times. The bread in those days was made from barley and roasted over a flame or on a hot stone. And it had the constituency and look of a round and soft Greek hero, right? Uh, Although the grain in the bread was far more coarse. It had the consistency of that. The point is this, that Boaz, this wealthy landowner, in serving this little pitiful peasant girl and honoring her as a special guest by giving her the roasted grain to dip is just abnormal. Normally, she would have been treated like a repulsive enemy. And again, the parallel shadowing of Jesus Christ is notable here, especially in the scene in John 13, right? Well, what does Jesus do in relationship to Judas? Jesus then answered in John 13, 26, that it is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and he gave it to Jesus, the son of Iscariot. And that was at the prompting of Peter who asked John, ask Jesus who he's referring to that's going to betray him. And Jesus says, it's the one who I'm going to dip and give the morsel. Now, wait a minute. You're treating the one who's going to betray you as an honored guest at the Last Supper. How is that possible? That's why they're so confused. All of their Jewish scruples were going nuts. You say somebody's going to betray you and you're going to treat them like the honored guest and dip and give it to him? Really? This is what Boaz does to Ruth. He loves his enemy. Now, the second action of sincere care is seen in the last part of verse 14. First, he treats her as an honored guest. But it says she ate and was satisfied and had some left. So the second thing is he allows her to eat until she can eat no more. (laughs) She allows her to eat until she can eat no more. Now, she was probably a little skinny gal, didn't have much. So she probably didn't eat a lot, all right? But nevertheless, she ate until she was full. Boaz did not limit her meal. He did not serve her a small amount and expect her to be happy with that small amount. He allowed her to eat as much as she wanted, and she still had food left over to take home. I don't know whether she asked for a doggy bag or not. Just joking. 
But up to that particular point, I doubt seriously that Ruth had ever been treated so kindly. This was about as far from what she really anticipated or expected. And so far beyond her wildest imagination, her heart is leaping for joy. Now, I do not know how she did this, but after having such a satisfying meal, she is full. She returns to gleaning. You must get an idea of how she was feeling at that point. Every time she bent over to pick up more sheaves, she's reminded of Boaz's amazing generosity. She's probably thinking to herself, I can barely reach the ground right now. I can barely pick up sheaves. She's so full. Her stomach was full. She was happy. The Lord had looked upon her with favor and used Boaz richly to bless her that day. So what do we say at this point? You and I have looked at Boaz's remarkable insight and his invitation. Now we want to turn to his remarkable instructions. That's going to be verses 15 and 16. He, we learned he selects her, he supports her, he speaks to her, he serves her. And there are two more things that he does when he gives special instructions on her behalf. The other two things that he does here in this giving instructions, he shelters her and he supplies for her. He shelters her and he supplies for her. In verses 15 and 16, Boaz addresses the men who would be working in the field with Ruth. And these final instructions he gives to the guys who were working with her, and they are very strong. They're very specific instructions. And I'm afraid that our English translations of this text does not convey the seriousness of really what Boaz was saying. You can easily assume that he's commanding his men not to be rude to her because our English translation says, don't insult her. Don't be rude to her. We can easily assume that. But the idea in the Hebrew is much stronger than that. His whole intent is to shelter her from any kind of harm that may come her way at all. So let's talk about that. In verse 15, he shelters her. He sheltered her. When the English says, do not insult her, it softens the meaning, giving the impression that the men were not to embarrass her. But the Hebrew word is what we call a hifel verb. It means to reproach, to hurt someone. It means to put anyone to shame. Um, it means to shamefully treat them, to injure them, is the idea. In fact, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, translates it to disgrace or to shame. Now, this is a much stronger idea, and it basically means don't molest her. That's what it means. It means don't molest her. I believe the softer view of our English translation comes from the Latin Vulgate, which really translates it, do not hold her back or deter her. But the Hebrew in the Septuagint sees this as a strong warning not to attack her or assault her, especially sexually. This is a common practice in ancient time. Young women would be sexually assaulted if they were alone and away from the crowds of the city. And this was especially true of women who were foreigners. 
In other words, Ruth was highly susceptible at this point. They didn't enjoy the same protection that local Hebrew women possessed. If anyone touched Ruth or attacked her, they would have to answer to the big boss. And Boaz was absolutely determined to protect Ruth and to keep her from any type of harm or harassment. He was determined about that. Boaz also says that they are to allow her to glean, even among the sheaves. You see that in verse 15? Now, what does that mean? Under the Old Testament gleaning laws, poor Israelites were allowed to go around and pick up leftover sheaves, the field workers left behind from the edges of the field sometimes. And yet, Boaz gives special instructions to go beyond the letter of the law and permit her to glean among the workers as they were harvesting. That was never done. She was permitted to work alongside the workers and collect sheaves of grain with them, not just pick up their leftovers. Boaz is breaking common customs left and right here and giving Ruth privileges that exceeded the commands of God. Now, Boaz is not antinomial. (laughs) He's not against the law. He understands the intent of the Mosaic law in terms of gleaning. And he's, not, he's just not satisfied with just meaning the letter of the law. He wants to fulfill the heart of the law. So again, this reminds me of Jesus Christ. Remember his words in the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek Turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to see you and take your shirt, let him have your coat. Whoever forces you to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. Now those words seem strange, but they center around the sacred idea of putting others before yourself. The law says an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But that only expresses the limit you can do in order to achieve justice. It's not commanding you, you have to do it. And Jesus explains, or just like Jesus explains, Boaz was willing to go the extra mile with someone who normally would have been one of his enemies. Ruth was allowed to glean more than the edges of the field. She could glean right in the center of the field and with all the other workers around her, and get some of the best of the grain, and they were not to rebuke her. So he shelters her. Verse 16, he also supplies for her. He also supplies for her. The final part of Boaz's instruction goes even further. Not only can Ruth glean, she can glean among the harvesters. And now the harvesters are instructed to purposely leave behind hands full of sheaves from their own work that they have harvested and cut from the field so that she can pick them up. Like someone leaving breadcrumbs behind, deliberately dropping them so that they can be found. This was an incredible supply for her and Naomi. Um, There's a story told, it's a true story, of 13-year-old Jemima Boone. 
daughter of the frontiersman Daniel Boone, having been captured by the Shawnee in Kentucky in the summer of 1776 when our country became a country. It's interesting, my family history, my personal family history, goes back to Daniel Boone's sister, Sarah Boone, Wilcoxon, direct lineage back to that. But Jemima was his daughter. Jemima was out working near the river when Shawnee Indians came along and kidnapped her along with a couple of other young girls. They were swiftly led away by the Shawnee, and she stumbled through the brush as she's being pulled along. And as she did this, she purposely tore off little pieces of her dress and left it behind. Her father, Daniel, and a group of men from Boonesboro tracked her down following the clues that she left behind and rescued her. Those little pieces of dress that she left behind ended up saving her life. Well, in our text here in verse 16, Boaz wants his harvesters to leave behind whole bunches of sheaves of grain for Ruth to glean. She doesn't even have to cut them. All she has to do is just pick them up. These little pieces of sheaves will help to save the lives of both Ruth and Naomi. They had nothing and Yahweh understood. He provided for them through the remarkable and amazing insight, invitation, and instructions of Boaz. Long before Jesus spoke of it in the Sermon on the Mount, Boaz understood the concept of loving your enemy and caring for your enemy. He selected, supported, spoke to, served, sheltered, supplied for Ruth. What more could he do? Well, there is more, lots more. But that's for a future message. Corey Ten Boom said this, you never so touch the ocean of God's love as when you forgive and love your enemies. It's about for prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you again for the story of Boaz, of Ruth. It's remarkable what you did in bringing enemies together. It's remarkable in righteousness how, Father, you took the insightful perception of Boaz uh, and you turned it into an invitation. And then, Father, special instructions in order to provide and protect Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. This becomes unexpected, unexpected redemptive providence. Father, we know that you're the same God who's at work in our lives even in this day. There's a lot of unexpected things that you are doing if we just open our eyes to see them. 
in providing and protecting for your people. And this is the great cause for thanksgiving. This launches us into a week to thank you for all that you do, the things that we see, and most of the things that we do not see. So we commit our lives to you, Father. Help us to be examples. The same as Boaz in terms of learning to love our enemies. This we pray in Christ's name.